got him, we got him. Cutie! Is it still going the race or is it over? Checkered flag is out, it's all over, all over. Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm Ellie Mae Taylor and we're back once again to review the Japanese Grand Prix. Of course, I'm not alone. I'm joined by someone who's turned another year older, perhaps not yet wiser, but <laughs> since we were last on the podcast. <laughs> Jesse, barely... how is 25? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's been quite literally a day of being 25 and what a day it's been, honestly. I, it... Chaotic. Yes, that that probably sums it up. Um, I feel over the weekend I've eaten one entire Red Bull budget of food from restaurants. So, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Hopefully it'll be good food. But going, oh, it was good food. <laughs> going from the eldest of the group to the youngest, Timo, how are you? I'm pretty good, and I was going to be mean and say that maybe it's just the shower that Jesse just had, but he does look at at least a year older this week compared to last week. So it's it's been a rough 24 hours perhaps on him, but uh, we'll blame that on the, on the food, shall we? I'll have you know I'm moisturised as well. I should be, <laughs> and I've shaved. I should be looking young and fresh, but... but we don't want to go there. I could be different. here a while. That's what... Yeah, I got rid of the beard. Yeah. Straight out of the gates, Timo comes at me on my appearance. This is <laughs> unacceptable. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that this episode, I feel like. But that's not even our fault. That's just the way that news has been. Yes, there's going to be a lot of us going at each other and at certain events. So we'll crack right on with things with uh, what the hell has happened. And uh, Timo, I'll let you take the first point. In shock news this year that nobody saw coming in any way, shape or form, especially in the last two months, Max Verstappen has been crowned the 2022 Formula One World Champion. And we're all absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, spoilers, Max we are not. Happen. And Ellie May might actually start rapping again and we are going <laughs> to be in crisis mode. So I'm going to swiftly steamroll on. And it wasn't a surprise, obviously. He's been dominant all season. Jesse put the stroke down. And, yeah, it was it was just a matter of when and not if, really. Singapore was a bit ambitious. Japan, we thought it was doable. And... Again, finishing the race, we didn't know if it was doable or not because we didn't quite know what the heck was happening due to mainly Sky Sports and the FIA not being totally clear and everything, but that's we'll get to that. And it's again been a season where Checo has been more of a threat to his championship, but at the same time, very much the solid rear gun of the number two driver and... If it wasn't, it's, it was amusing because you see on the F1 YouTube channel the highlights from the race and it's championship battle, the decider, and it's Charles versus Checo. Max is nowhere to be seen at all. And it just shows how much of a role he's played this season. And there's a there's a note here, there's a question, could he have done it without Checo? And probably yes. It's Red Bull, the, the constructors, definitely not. Um uh, probably still do a bit probably still be Ferrari actually considering what they've been like but it would be trickier to do it um but Checo has definitely helped him but I don't think he's been in a league with Max at any point none, none of the other drivers have Charles at the beginning of the year perhaps but again as Charles themselves admitted Ferrari they've got the they've got the car they just don't have everything else nailed down whereas Red Bull they have everything and I feel like Max if he saw a bad strategy he would just do his own thing and tell the team what to do and he would still be fine. A bit like we've seen from past world champions in in Lewis is the, the one that comes to mind immediately. Um, in terms of we're going to try this instead and 
make it all there. So Ferrari and Checo definitely helped him, but he was also the biggest help to himself. And it's amusing considering where we started off the year, Bahrain DNF, Australia DNF, and he's won by a ridiculous amount with four races left to go and makes you wonder how many more championships he's got left in him. I mean, the rate he's acquired his first two and the the demolition he's put in place this year to get to that second one so quickly and so ruthlessly suggests that there's going to be another two, three championships in him, certainly, especially if it's going to take a few teams to start sort of giving me at least a season or two to start putting up a fight against Red Bull. And it, again, some of this now depends on what we know that was released late this afternoon and potential knock-on effects through following seasons. But on Max Verstappen's level... He'll be driving at a, champ- at a level that should secure him a world championship. I mean, you said uh, he started the season sort of uh, with two DNFs. He started somewhere around nearly 50 points shy of Charles Leclerc, way back down the standings. He's come to turn that round with an hour 113 point lead and four races still remaining. That is an incredible feat. And bear in mind how long, how fast he turned it around, how fast he overtook Charles in the standings, and then how big of a gulf he earned so quickly there has that been is where i would say that it's not necessarily how much has Checo helped him but how much ferrari has helped him because whilst he's doing everything he's needed to do week in week out ferrari have been if 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 if, if max is punching in his time card every time ferrari have been missing it and headbutting the time card slot every single weekend in one way shape or another and it just goes to show that yeah you can have a fast car or in the case of Mercedes, you can have two excellent drivers, but if you don't have the card, then it's it's you're not going to be able to put it all together there. And arguably, with how uncompetitive I want to say the every team is outside of the top three in relation to the top three, you do need Ferrari and Mercedes to really get their their ducks in a row for next year if they stand any kind of a chance to to beat Max and to present and to at least make it more challenging for him to get another one. If he goes down to Abu Dhabi again and he gets it, then fair enough, at least you know he's definitely earned it. But it'd be nice to see that battle drag out a bit longer. And when you've got drivers like Checo, not a bad driver, he's I don't think he's in the same league as Leclerc and Hamilton and Russell arguably on their day, but he's still a big threat. And Lewis obviously we know what he's capable of and George it's again, it's the awkward thing of we've said it before. Oh, wait until he gets a good car, gets the Mercedes first year Mercedes is a bad car. So it's frustrating that we have that in a way because you want to see that battle. And I think at the rate things are going, Mercedes might sort this situation out before Ferrari do. But at this point, we just want someone to be able to compete with Red Bull because mm-hmm. that Adrian Newey is designed possibly the most successful car ever in his in his history. It's very reminiscent of Vettel 2013. Um, and it's but that came at the end of the regulations window, not at the beginning, mm. which is why it's concerning. Yeah, for, knew for had, everyone knew he'd had that chance to build up to a sort of pinnacle car this year. He's come out of the gates with a pinnacle car, and there's chance that a lot of the development will have come into play already, and that next year's car will already be quite a strong vehicle. The question I wanted to ask before I sort of shut up and let Ellie May have a talk on this was. On the Perez front, is how does Perez stack up as a second driver at Red Bull? We've now seen him in that seat for two years. 
I think it's fair to say he's outclassed Gasly and Albon in that seat, considering how close he's been to Verstappen. Obviously, he came home on Sunday, 30 seconds down the road from Max. Admittedly, he was battling Charles Leclerc a lot of the time. But would you say he's more of a Mark Webber at Red Bull? He's that sort of that abs- that absolute driver that Red Bull needs. I would say he's not quite Mark Webber yet, because whilst he still probably has a has the better chance out of everyone else interested in that fight for second place of finishing second. Weber, I think, was a more complete driver and was able to take it to Vettel more often than not, whereas Checo, I don't think he's ever really been in that position in the times he has been. Red Bull have kind of like, and he's moved aside accordingly um, and played the team game, which is fair enough because, again, in 2020, he was looking like he was going to be out of everyone completely. He's very grateful for Red Bull, and that's exactly why he was happy to play second for Max all of last year. And if you'd asked me last year, would Max have won the title without Checo? Probably not, because he played a much more instrumental part there. Quite a bit like Bottas, you could argue for Lewis as well. But this year, again, Checo had had less involvement there. And I think next year it's going to be very interesting, especially like the first five or six races, to see what Checo does, because he wants a world championship and he still might not have or he's just ignoring the post from Red Bull saying no no you don't get one of those whereas Weber I think just never even he changed his he changed his posting address so that he never even received those messages so he could at least go for it and be more ruthless about it so I think Checo is definitely the best one since Weber maybe oh I don't know actually Ricardo was fairly good as well though Ricard, Ricardo and Weber are still the top two, I think, for me. But then Checo is, is not far off. If he, if it depends very much on 2023. Yeah, I would have put... It's difficult because Daniel Ricardo was at the start of Verstappen's Red Bull era. And I, I would say out of the two at the start, Daniel Ricardo was the, the better of the two. But in this sort of... Max Verstappen era we are in now he's just unmatched and it's not just his driving ability but it's now his his personality and how he brings himself to every race he's cool he's calm he's collected it is Lewis-esque if you look at the similarities they do kind of have that same similar vibe to them they're just there they can do whatever they want outside of the racetrack they come in they deliver week in week out they're going to get the maximum out of it and it doesn't matter if they've had an absolutely terrible time outside of the racetrack they're going to come there and they're just going to do exactly what they do best. Yeah, and I think whilst Max loves racing, I think it's almost a sense that it's not his whole life. It's not, I don't think we're going to see Max Verstappen be here when it's like at the same age that like Fernando is now, or even Lewis at like 36. I don't think we will actually see Verstappen then because I don't think, I don't think he really even sees himself in Formula One at that point. I think he thinks, yeah, I love racing and this is what I do, but it's not my whole life. This isn't my full personality. It's not well, it comes completely back who a bit I am. To, his ambition was to win a world championship. He's done that. He's done that twice he now. Has disappeared. And he thought there isn't being. I can hear you. Am I back? You're back. You're back. Okay. Max was saying that he win he wants to win a championship. He's done that twice now. And he was saying that after he wins a championship, there's nothing really left for him to achieve there. And he's not really corrected himself on that one since he's not said, oh, three would be nice or five would be nice or I'll go for the, the all-time record. He's just kind of 
enjoying himself and that's why I think he could get three or four and then who knows maybe that'll be the kind of the next Nico Rosberg story instead of sticking with Red Bull to the end of his current contract he just leaves at the end of 25 before the new regs kick in and you replace maybe one Dutchman with another with the freeze and give him a chance I mean it's very possible but I I think that's the thing he's you've got nothing left to prove and if he's because I mean Lewis I feel like he wants that eighth title he only needs one more whereas Max okay he's already on two but he's another five just to level the, mm. get it level and then it's another one on top of that that's a lot of stuff and especially if the new regs work as they're supposed to and everything keeps getting closer then that's going to become more and more difficult and maybe that's exactly what he'll need but at the same time will his motivation be that does is that what he wants yeah, it's an interesting story to ask him, and it's the sort of thing that'd be fun to put to him in a, in an interview. But at the moment, he's, I think his his mental health and the state that where he sort of sits and his sort of his psyche sits at one where he enjoys the sport, he enjoys coming along and doing F one and being part of the paddock and doing what he does. It helps that he's obviously winning and is exceptionally talented at what he does. But that keeps his enjoyment, his excitement, his investment in it. And I think he'll keep doing that until it gets to a point where it no longer has that reward for him. It no longer has that sort of... It could almost come at a point where he is so dominant that he becomes bored, as opposed to he can no longer be dominant. It could be almost the opposite of that, where he simply goes, this is no longer presenting the challenge I sort of relished. When you He'll get to a point where he looks back at 2021 and goes... No, I could do with that again, the the fun of having to push every race. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he does. But I mean, there's a brilliant quote from Alex Albon saying Max will sort of, before the race, be sitting in his sort of trailer opening up FIFA packs and stuff. And he's got this sort of very stable attitude to the way he goes racing. He keeps himself in sort of very much a clean sort of mental zone, prepared for the race. He comes into it with a very focused aspect. He sort of has a he's honed a way of developing himself before a race and yeah he's he the team at red bull those around him have helped sort of construct a f1 machine as it were and produce someone who is capable of just going out there driving a damned good f1 race and then sort of almost sort of switch that side of him off and he becomes sort of fun enjoyable max staff and you look at the videos that red bull put out where they sent um max checo uh, Pierre and Yuki around Tokyo on some sort of almost Top Gear-esque challenge and you look at the humour, the personality side of it it hasn't yet drained him of his love and passion for the sport and made him a sort of Nico Rosberg almost, sort of he has one thing that's left on his mind and it's Formula 1 and you ever speak to Nico Rosberg you see him in TV interviews, he's oh yeah I beat Lewis Hamilton in equal machinery Max Verstappen hasn't he did. He doesn't mention it a lot. But Max Verstappen hasn't gotten to that point. He's, yeah, he's beaten Lewis Hamilton in pretty much damn equal machinery. Those Last year, those two cars were pretty much on par. But his... I heard there was more ketchup on the Red Bull than on the Mercedes, but that's just hearsay. We'll see. Um, we, we're still undecided on how much of a gap there is in the rear wing. We weren't allowed to touch it. Um, but he's he's still got a sort of a personality the the sport hasn't ground him down yet and that's after two championships look at what it did to Nico like an Alfa Tauri let's see if it, let's watch it <laughs> let's see how it goes there but obviously it took one champion one full championship mount to try and win and that ruined ended Nico Rosberg it sort of broke him in a way and you look at the what Nico Rosberg had to put into that championship fight does make you wonder the chairs playing with his wife my last point because we have so much to get through on it if it had been lewis that won last year after all that like you say it took a championship 
It took three, it took it took Nico three championships challenges to finally beat Lewis. If Max had lost last year, it would be very interesting to see, knowing what we know about the cars this year, how much that still would have played into his mindset for this year. And okay, he does. It's a lot easier to beat Lewis now, but Charles is there, and maybe this it'd be the opposite case of the team's perfect, but the driver isn't, whereas with Ferrari's the driver's perfect, but the team isn't, and maybe we'd have had a closer championship fight, but again, that's just a big what if. Well, I think the key thing is that it's hard to put Nico Rosberg and Max Verstappen side by side because Nico Rosberg, there were huge tensions, obviously, within Mercedes. He was at a point where like, he had a family and he just thought, you know what, this isn't worth it anymore. I'm moving on. What's his back for Stappen? There's harmony within Red Bull. So unless Checo or another teammate brings the fight within Red Bull, Red Bull are going to stay completely harmonious until someone brings the fight to them, I guess. Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. Speaking of DeVries, Ellie May, there's news from the sort of French and Italian teams? Yes, I'm sure it will come to a shock. It comes a shock to you all. It's been announced that Pierre Gasly will be racing alongside Esteban Ocon Alpine, making it a whole French affair. And, you know, I'm not one for gloating, but I may have a couple of podcasts ago said, what about De Vries to Alphatari? I don't and... think that's called gloating anymore. I think that's called looking at everything and just following basic logic. No, after the Italian Grand Prix, I think everyone was convinced that was going to happen. Well, I don't know because somebody mansplained me on this podcast and were like, "Nah, this is." I wouldn't do something through. like that now, would I, Ellie May? Yes, you would. <laughs> but did I in this instance? We'll replay the tape and check. Hmm. We'll remain a mystery. But anyway, Gasly's moved on. You look it more worried means... than I do, Jesse. I put it like that. <laughs> As a result, it means that it's marked the end of a nine-year relationship with Red Bull, which has had its very public ups and downs. Um, but it also means that then he's now going from something that's sort of lower down on the grid to a mid-team at the minute with Alpine. Um, they haven't confirmed how long he is with Alpine for. They've just said it's like a multi, multi-year contract. But um, it's, think- it's one of those things. I feel like it's a great move for Gasly, but it's a bad move for Alpine. And not just because... Gasly and Ocon, they need to sort out their personal relationship and if they don't at least need to figure out how to be professional on each other and that's all part of the business which we've talked about before but I just think if you're Alpine, you've got a, a solid driver in Ocon who's been doing pretty well this year and you're essentially just cloning him in Gasly because they both their statistics are very similar on across, across the board and again I know that there's pent-up feelings maybe with Daniel Ricciardo between him and Alpine, maybe more on the Alpine side. But if you're looking to advance your team into a race-winning and potentially championship-contending team, 
you should have gone for the proven race winner, the guy that you know can is the closest to Fernando Alonso you're going to get. There were rumours on Sky Germany that they were approaching Vettel to yeah, come and replace Alonso because it would have made the most sense in terms of like-for-like like replacement. And I think if you can't get Vettel, then you get Ricardo because, again, nothing against Ocon, but I think Ricardo is better at building a team around him when he knows that they're all properly invested in him and that they are capable of pushing themselves forward and he's got, he'll have more of that hunger because he's towards the end of his career, whether we like it or not. Um, not necessarily this year, but whenever he comes back and then when he leaves after that, it'll be, I don't think he's coming back after that. And I think he would be better to, to keep pushing them forward like Alonso has been doing. And maybe I'll be wrong, but I'm just, I feel like I should be more excited for a Gasly Ocon lineup and I'm just, I'm not feeling it. Well... You look at the relationship that Pierre Gasly has created around him and AlphaTauri, I think he can do it. He is very close to Franz Tost. Um, I mean, he couldn't do it with Red Bull, but maybe Alpine is where he can. And I think there has always been underlying sort of talks between when it used to be Renault and, Ga um, and Gasly and now it's obviously Alpine. So I think the connection was always there and it's kind of just been a case of when when is it the right time? And now it's sort of... I think it is the right... Well, it's the right time for Gasly, definitely. He had to get out of Red Bull because, well, he was never going to go up to Red Bull. So so was he going to then just be stuck in AlphaTauri for the rest of his career? It's, it's no. one of those things I feel like not necessarily the a problem for Gasly. Like if you're Gasly, you're doing that move. It makes the most sense. But I feel like with this announcement, with DeFries as well, and with every other bit of driving news we've heard this season, aside from Alonso, but even then a, a little bit with Alonso to, to Aston Martin, they've all been logical. None of it has seemed very Formula One. It's, and there's that craziness that comes with it. Like when you... when. Bottas to Alfa Romeo, like, okay, that's interesting. We, he could have gone to a few different teams. He chose this one. Then the year before where you have Vettel, he leaves Ferrari for Aston Martin, which was so unknown at that point um, and was still racing points at that, at that moment in time. And signs to Ferrari and Ricardo to McLaren, it all was kind of like, whoa, what is all of this? Whereas this year you're like, Piastri to McLaren, eh, makes sense. Alonso to Aston Martin, bit left field, but makes sense. Gasly to Alpine, like, yeah. But if it was Ricardo, I feel like you just like, oh, I wonder, can he can he go back there? Can they just kiss and make up and then not only trounce McLaren, but maybe go after Ferrari in the process because we didn't know about what the situation they were going to be in at this point. And I don't know. I'm just I hate feeling the love. You say it's maybe safe, but is it? Because obviously Ocon and Gansley have previously not gotten on. I mean, well, safe, safe in the sense that you've got two solid drivers who, in theory, should be able to just it's 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 the you're not taking much of a risk in terms of you only have to worry about them when they're near each other on track, as we see when Ocon has done is next to literally any of his teammates, he will fight them way harder than anyone else, um, which is kind of what you should be doing anyway. But it just in that sense, it seems like the safe option. I will say on this, I think we're underestimating Esteban Ocon. 
obviously he yeah. did, he was pretty close with Danny Rick through their second season together at Renault. And look at the performances Esteban Ocon is pulling out of that car. Potentially, if you put Danny Rick into that car now, we might see might have seen a podium once or twice. Obviously, we saw Esteban Ocon come home fourth this race in challenging conditions, holding off Lewis Hamilton around a circuit where we did prove you could probably you can overtake in those conditions. A lot of people were making overtakes, and that Mercedes is a significantly better car with a seven-time world champion in it, and it, he couldn't get past Esteban Ocon. Clearly, something about Ocon in that car works well enough that they have a competent package. I feel that Pierre moving there is going to be, I don't want to say a second driver role, but, and I don't want to say he's going to be outshone by Gasly, but there is going to be a clear preference within the team to the driver they have signed for God knows how many years from here till eternity in Ocon. But they are going to make the most use of Pierre Gasly, someone who's been through the Red Bull Driver Academy, someone who we know to be fast in Formula 2, Formula 3, someone who's proven that with a good car under them, someone with a supportive team around them can be fast and competitive. They've got a strong lineup. It's not the strongest on the grid, but it is a strong and stable base from which they can develop. And if we look at the trajectory that Alpine have been on for the past few years, developing with a strong, stable driver base that is open and good at communication seems to be their forte and i think to that extent yes while it is a logical a safe move it's one that everyone could see coming from a mile off it could have some strong points to sort of come out of it and the last thing i will say on that before we move on to the other bit of news before we get to the juicy stuff is that the key word when you were saying about ocon just now is he was close to ricardo you didn't beat him ricardo kind of did more or less wipe the floor with him and it was he only it was only at uh what was it sakia that he got on the podium again um and again once ricardo was out of the team he flourished a little bit we saw that last year as but there was alonso finding his feet as soon as alonso was back up that he was still then the only drove over time to get on the podium last year was alonso um and okay ocon closed this time with fourth place but again, that Mercedes, the straight line speed isn't there. So how much of that is down to the car or down to the driver? You've got a solid midfield car in a good position with a car that we know is plagued with more issues than potentially the Alpine is. It's just in certain, it's certainly um, better and worse, very track dependent, whereas the Alpine has, for the most part, looked pretty solid throughout most of the tracks, if I'm not mistaken, which I may be, but I'm trying to think. There's nothing glaringly obvious sticking out to me there. Um, aside from Singapore, but you know that could be because of Ellie May's excellent strategy that she gave to Alpine to use some old engines so they can just get rid of them. That is true. I did say last last podcast, didn't I? That yeah, that is. I forgot all about that. Anyway, we're getting all about that. <laughs> and yes, swiftly on. Ricardo has ruled himself out no, to be on the grid next year, more or less. Well, he's not a fish. Oh, come on, go on then. Ed, Jesse's going to edit around all this. No, no, I'm going to leave it in like usual. I... <laughs> Why do we have to have hour and a half long things? Because you just can't be bothered. I think, well, we'll just say quickly, just a bit more on who's filling that empty Avatari seat. Nick DeFries. He also mm. turns out that his actual name is Hendrick. Did not know that. Uh, Someone's been on Wikipedia today. I have. (laughs) Yes, he's going to fill that that Alphatari spot with Yuki. It was a long time coming. 
F2 world champion, former E1 world champion. He proved he should definitely be in Formula One with his uh, ninth place at Monza, scoring two points for Williams on, a, on his first ever Formula One outing. He also has the only driver to have a 100% point scoring record this season. Jesse? It's a true statistic. There's a lot of context that goes into it, but... It was just a long time coming. But anyway, Timo, you can carry on. That's all right. Thank you very much. I'm glad I got your questions. Ricardo has more or less ruled himself out to be on the grid for next year. It's not a complete definite, but barring any major changes, that it looks like he's he's going to be on the sidelines. But he doesn't want to go racing anywhere else, apparently. He very much wants to stay in the world of F1. And going off rumour mill around the paddock from various people and again from the press conference a few weeks ago when Lewis and other drivers were saying he deserves a place on the grid it's looking possible and interesting that he would be a Mercedes reserve driver next year which could be very very interesting actually because he would get some FP1 sessions then and it would be quite fascinating to see what he could do in that Mercedes especially if they can improve it and keep building on what they've been doing this year to see how that would compare to Lewis and George. What that means for his end game, not sure, because he'd be, he'd be looking to go on back on the grid for 2024, which you think, well, what's available then? Depends on a few places. Red Bull potentially, but again, because again, we know contracts ultimately mean nothing if the people want to make it happen badly enough. Um, would you go back to Red Bull? Mm-hmm. Stranger things have possibly happened. I don't know what they are right now, but it could. Alpine, maybe it implodes with Gasly and Ocon. They said, yeah, you know what? We should have gone with Ricardo instead. And he decides, yeah, no, right now, give me another 10 million for being a dickhead. Um, or maybe he goes to Ferrari. I could see them having a terrible time of it again next year of their own doing. And either Charles or Carlos just saying, you know what? screw this, I'm out of here, and Ricardo is maybe the, the saviour that they've been looking for. Um, obviously, all pure speculation, but I'm just, I'm, I think that's one of the weirdly, the more exciting things for next year is that, okay, we won't see Ricardo around a lot, but when we do see him, he'll be in a Mercedes, which is kind of one of those time traveller moves a chair, and this is the effect of it. Um, so... It's a shame we're not going to get to see him. We still have an Aussie on the grid, Oscar Piastri. Won't be the same. And I think if there's anything good to come out of the possibility of Nico Hülkenberg coming into the Haas seat instead of Schumacher, it is that you can be a driver that never got on the podium in your 10-year career in Formula 1 and you can still come back into the sport after a, a significant amount of time out and some some filling in occasionally and maybe we see that next year for whatever reason we see Ricardo in a race maybe George or Lewis gets ill who knows um, strange, stranger things happen but let's look at 2020 um, and then after that you think okay he can do that after being out of the car for six months maybe we should maybe we should just have a little exploratory talk and we see him see him somewhere I think my glimmer of hope is that before Checo was announced as the as the Red Bull driver, Red Bull considered Sebastian Vettel 
So, now that Daniel Ricciardo is out of a contract, will they potentially, if Checo leaves, will they potentially look at Daniel Ricciardo coming back? He, he also, was great so, good luck team. taming him if against Max again. He will, he will want that championship more than Max does. And it's like, oh, crap, I've got to work for this again now. I think it would be amazing to see whether Daniel Ricciardo could bring it to Max Verstappen again. Because it was. I almost of... kind of want to see him do to Max what Max has done to Checo this year. <laughs> Just because everyone would be so surprised. And all the people who've been saying, oh, Ricardo's done for, he should have retired ages ago. He should have never joined McLaren. Be like, oh, yeah. All those, all those true believers were, were correct all along. He should have just never left Red Bull. I know he wasn't happy there, but he should have never left Red Bull because he now could potentially be fighting for a championship. Could Instead, have one. he could already have one. Exactly. It, but then, That's the thing. <laughs> considering all the controversy from last year with Abu Dhabi, would anyone have minded if it was Ricardo versus Lewis? No, because everyone there's there's no side when it comes to those two. Then everyone's just kind of like, yeah. Ricardo, if it can't be Lewis, it can be Ricardo, and even the Lewis fans are happy, and the same reverse. And it, also going back to um, potential seats, before he went to um, McLaren, him and Ferrari sp- spoke as well. He was he was a bit of a shoe in for that role. I think at one point it looked like, for whatever reason. Yeah, should we issue in? Um, I think for some reason at one point Sainz was almost off to Aston Martin and it would have been um, Ricardo off to Ferrari. It was one of those weird points where it was sort of like, oh, we say, or potentially we just lose Carlos Sainz from the grid. And we're sort of like, no, all right, but Danny Rick's off to Ferrari. Interesting. How will that pan out? And yeah, it'll be, don't get me wrong, it'll be sad to see him go at the end of the season without any sort of confirmation as to when he will be back. But I, I do have these doubts as to what will happen if he becomes a reserve driver for Mercedes. Obviously, you look at the other reserve drivers on the grid. Nick DeVries is the only driver who's acted as a reserve who's come back with a full-time seat. We have yet to hear about Nico Hülkenberg potentially coming back. But you look at the likes of Stoffel van Dorn, another world champion in Formula E. Not got a seat coming back, not coming into that McLaren seat to fill in for Danny Rick. They've gone for Oscar Piastri. It's unlikely they're going to replace two young drivers with the slightly older Stoffel Van Dorn because days numbered, you're, you've got to be a young guy to get into F1 these days. And you look at Ferrari, they've got the good talent of Antonio Giovinazzi and he is stuck on the sidelines now as their reserve driver. I'm not going to be putting him in the same league as Stoffel Van Dorn. I'm not going to put sorry, not putting him in the same league as him, but what I'm saying is that if you end up in that reserve role, it is tricky to come back beyond a few FP1 sessions or literally when you have to come in and fulfil your role as a reserve driver. We haven't seen um, oh, not Daniel Kvyat come back, uh, Robert Kubica come back. We haven't seen any of these people that leave Formula 1 and go into a reserve driver role come back for a long-term season. I admit Robert Kubica is probably a bit of a left-field choice there given his age and the fact that he just sort of somehow keeps popping up. But the fact of the matter is that you, it, it's often a bit of a one-way street and you don't come back from it. That's my one fear that if he were to take this Mercedes driver role is he's chaining himself to an unstoppable force that he can't, can't get away from at that point. I guess the only argument would be is that usually 
those reserve drivers haven't been as good as driver as Danny Rick. I know yeah. Danny Rick hasn't been as good at this McLaren, but we can. None of those reserve drivers have the past that Danny Rick has. Yeah, it is a none of the people who are getting seats on the grid next year have the history he has. If you add up all the wins and podiums combined, you'd still nowhere near what Ricardo has by himself between all of them. Unless you can't freeze believe in that, it's in a different category. Mm. And he's had to really fight for some of those wins. Look at Monaco. He had mm-hmm. half the engine power. He still won it. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's a flat rule. Get on the Danny Ricardo train, Jesse. Ignore everyone else. Stop it. it. You're meant to be older and wiser. Start acting like you. I'm just I'm no I'm I'm not on the train, but I'm fearful of where that train is going. I want to I'll get push on. You on. I'll push you under the train if you keep going on this. I want to get on it, but the chalkboard where it says destination, it's currently unknown, and I don't like That's that. That's what's exciting about it. It's adventurous. Get on board. Stop being so boring. It's a career, not a ghost train. I'm not in this to be terrified. Anyway, talking of terrified though. Talking of terrifying things that are genuinely... What were the FIA up to this weekend? Yes, right. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to pause the podcast now, go and get a glass of water, a a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, sit down and enjoy, because I am about to take you on a 1,500-word rant with a small pause in between for everyone else to interject. Point chaos and communication breakdowns, the near-fatal flaw this weekend. Delayed or stalled communication... He's got a title and everything, Jesus Christ. I came prepared. You're lucky I haven't got a George Russell PowerPoint to go with this. I did ask if he was free to do it, but he said he was a little busy. Um, it's giving the same vibes as gentlemen. A short, a short view, view back, back to, to the, the past. past. <laughs> More or less communication with your engineers. Anyway, delayed or stalled communications between the... Oh, God, I've started... More or less... It's already... Uh, you've got a <laughs> joke in my head now. Delayed or stalled communication between the marshalling points coming out of the hairpin towards Spoon Curve and the race director saw the potentially early release of a recovery vehicle on track. This was later confirmed when we saw some drivers coming past that vehicle with the green flags still out. The circuit was under double-waved yellows even as Pierre approached the scene. It's only as he gets there that the circuit goes red. In these conditions, standing on the brakes to shed speed, going through a turn in the pouring rain where another car has already aquaplaned is not best practice, especially when you have a vehicle on the circuit taking part in a recovery with a marshal barely visible stood on an active circuit in the racing line with the car proceeding towards them at speed. At the time, within the rules the float of the flags being shown, the mar- the, at the end of this, the stewards did decide that Pierre's penalty was handed to him for turns 14 through 15. This is the run out of Spoon and down to 130R. He was not handed a penalty for turn 12 where the recovery was going on. He was at the time respecting the delta under the safety car approaching turn 12. The red flag was then displayed too late for him to react and break safely with the tractor and the marshal right on the racing line to his left. The stewards deemed this was a fair reason and as a result no penalty was handed out for the turn 12 thing. The problem is the FIA might use this as an excuse to say, there we are, problem solved with that, we'll move on. From my view, the penalty that was handed out is quite fair, because at that point, after the spoon curves, Pierre Gasly was speeding under red flag conditions. But the FIA and race directors owe Pierre an apology for leaving him to rocket towards a high percentage chance of death with no communication. So having a vehicle and pedestrians on the circuit with no communication of this to drivers, especially in these conditions, is unacceptable. In Formula E, it's base rule to inform drivers when there is a recovery vehicle on circuit. This same rule does not apply in Formula 1. It is up to teams, engineers, to confirm this to the drivers. 
Fact is that no one knew until the cars arrived at the scene that a digger was on the track recovering the vehicle, suggests there was a major flaw in this chain. Timo, you have a point. I will also add, because I was I had some a commentator in my head and I was trying to place which motorsport series he was from. And ELMS and WEC, they have the same thing that Formula E do. They have a voice coming over, it's like the voice of God, and it's saying full course yellow in three, two, one, and then it comes on it. It's, it just goes to all of the cars immediately or does, takes the teams out of it completely because it just goes straight there. There can be no mistaking it. And then if someone does mess about with it, bam, we know about it straight away. You're done for, mate. Get in mm. it. I want to say Why is that so have, difficult here? Yeah, I want to say IndyCar have something similar as well in that you get word on when areas of the circuit are either going yellow or green from race direction. I don't recall any real issues with that this year and I've watched most of that season, so... Exactly. Anyway, where was I? Um, so we've got a recovery vehicle and pedestrians on the circuit with no communication of this to the drivers. We have the safety car approaching the scene unaware that it is approaching a digger. We have the drivers in spray. You look at the visibility of even the drivers at the front of the pack they cannot make out that there is a crane, let alone a small single person, even clad in high-vis, stood at the front of it, manhandling Carlos Sainz's car off the circuit. Whether this marshalling team and recovery vehicle appeared on track prior to confirmation that they could enter, or they responded to their OK from the director faster than news could reach the drivers is unclear at this point in time, although evidence is suggesting that potentially it's the former and they were early responding to the accident. Through the spray, this came as a surprise to the drivers in safety car chain that there was a marshalling team and vehicle on circuit. Clearly news was slow getting about, and in these conditions that could have proved fatal. The rate and efficiency of communication between race directors, stewards and marshals needs to be improved for the safety of all concerned. This goes beyond the safety of the drivers. Look back for the onboard camera of Carlos Sainz's car as it's being recovered and try and spot the high-vis clad marshal through the gloom and then tell me if Pierre approaching at what was deemed an acceptable speed through the spray would have been able to spot the marshal too. Retrospectively, the luck we saw on circuit in the opening laps of this race was astronomical. While this weekend proved that the race directing team have neglected to carry anything forwards from the tragic loss of Jules Bianchi, it also proves that over a longer time span we've either neglected to learn or since forgotten about the death of both Tom Price and 19-year-old Marshal Frederick Janssen van Vuren at the 1977 South African Grand Prix. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's shocking. Having recovery teams on track as cars pass, especially in poor conditions, is a recipe for disaster. Clearer rules need to be laid out with regards recovery teams on track, both personnel and equipment, for the safety of all involved. Yeah, I don't, like, the speeding after spoon, separate thing, fine, deal with that. But I don't care what the circumstances are there. That track to the truck, it should never have been there in the bloody first place. You've got... A two and a half hour window afterwards where you red flag a Grand Prix. Is it going to kill you to wait five minutes to to do that? It's not going to kill them, but it might have killed Gasly. And that's the bottom line of it here. It doesn't matter. It, at the same time, you can be annoyed at saying he was maybe speeding, even if it wasn't, um, say, like on some of the cars, there was still a green flag there and it only just went red just before, just as he got up there. So he would not have been able to slow down that in that amount of time anyway I don't think and even if it was the case where he was going too too quick there I think 
the driver knows what's safe on the track in those conditions because they're the ones in it and they can feel it. It's dangerous when there is something that they do not know is there because they have not been told because of a, a rule that doesn't exist that exists in other motorsport series that are all FIA. And that why is it not a rule in F1? There isn't really an explanation for that and hasn't seemed to. If they don't mention that in the investigation they've opened into this, then what are they actually investigating? Because it just seems like it should have been there someone needs to lose a job or gets reprimanded for that, for bringing those ones out, because of all the places to do it, it's, again, Japan this time of year and with these conditions and with a driver who knew him and was friends with him. And you just think, and again, all the drivers had to be gathered out. Every time we go to Spa, he's there looking at the the, the memorial and putting something down there. You could have not had a worse driver that to be by Bar Charles, maybe. Um, and it's just it's ridiculous that it was that we're even talking about this because it seems that it's such a fundamental issue that it shouldn't even be an issue in the first place and it's also the fact that they're almost blaming Pierre Gasly for it all rather than taking yeah they're not taking any responsibility for the fact that they put every driver's life in danger as well as marshals and the person driving the tractor they're just kind of completely ignoring that we we yet to get an apology for it and they're just like <laughs> yeah they're literally just like you know what we're just going to blame Pierre Gasly for it all when okay he's partially to blame for speeding but at the same time there was not really much to say that he couldn't because he was trying to catch up with the safety car. He wasn't aware that something else was on track. And again, if you look at other drivers on boards, it's green on their steering wheel as they go past the tractor. So it's like, it was, it's, it's lucky in a way that it was Gasly and it wasn't someone else because that they were going at a different speed because that could have, there's so much that could have gone wrong there. And it's just pure luck that it didn't. And it's also in this day and age, should we still just be relying on the lights flashing at the side of the track or something going off on your steering wheel? I think we should have a, a voice to say safety car. Especially when it's done already in other FIA championships and it's just the norm. It's not exactly like it's going to be difficult or costly to, to incorporate that in. And as well, because you think in those sorts of conditions, visibility is horrendous. It's a slippery track. Drivers have got enough to be focusing on, so why not then just put inside their, like, a speaker saying, safety car? Again, the, the, the last bit I will point out before Jesse goes on his second part of his essay is that the other thing I was thinking of outside of the LMS was extremely. They can do it there when they're racing in some of the most barren and hostile places on earth with the most kind of rugged and basic stuff at times because they don't want to leave too much impact. And yet whenever a yellow flag or a red flag even is implemented in those races, it's done like that. And they can all hear it and they're racing in the middle of the Atacama Desert and it's perfectly fine. You can't, you're telling me you can't do that at Suzuka in the middle of Japan. Yeah, and... A further point to this is we know we have this interesting and very high-tech sort of pit wall to car communication. We saw it in Azerbaijan when they phoned, someone phoned in to congratulate, was it Sebastian Vettel last year on his win of Driver of the Day? I can't remember what it was, but there was a weird point where a 
commentating team from their base in Biggin Hill, London, was able to phone in to Sebastian Vettel's pit radio to commend him for driver of the day. If we have that breadth of communication, why do we not have a grid-wide system to inform drivers when there are obstacles on track, hazards on track, red flag conditions, marshalling teams out there? I admit that potentially when it happened in Monza, I was annoyed because I was a Fry fan and what it did was ruin the end of the race. But as you come up to that curve, you have clear sight lines. You can see there is a marshalling team on the track. You're going far slower because you're following the safety car through a corner. And crucially, track conditions and visibility were pristine. This means that drivers had plenty of time. Even if you were coming through at racing speed, you're getting on the brakes for that turn. It gives you plenty of time to see on the exit there is a digger moving a car. You have plenty of time to not get back on the power as you exit the corner towards that digger. That's fine. In situations like Japan, in situations where the conditions are atrocious or you're racing on a blind circuit like Saudi Arabia, if we're going to keep building high-speed street circuits like Azerbaijan, like Saudi Arabia, like we're projecting with Las Vegas, we need to have new rules about sending recovery vehicles out onto the circuit. I'm glad we didn't see any on track during the Singapore Grand Prix because, again, wet conditions around a tight street circuit where there is so little room for error, it would have proven to be incredibly dangerous and the fact we got away with it in japan was fantastically lucky i'll go on with the rest of my essay unless i want to say the final point uh i think just to say it's not it's not really a point as such but i would have really liked to have known martin uh, martin brundle's take on it because he he called someone being killed underneath a tractor before Jules Bianchi. He was like, I fear the day that this isn't eventually going to well, come. He was and still it around when it happened previous. I mean, Bianchi was 20 years after Senna and Ratzenberger and Martin Brunner was still around for all of that. And of course, he was racing prior to that when it was happening as well, I think. Or at least he was, not in F1, but he was around in motorsport when it was more common. So again, it's interesting, like you say, be it's, it's. I feel like what we got from Sky, especially, they did not do themselves a brilliant service this weekend overall. Um, weirdly, when they were looking at Gasly at the tractor and everything, the person who made most sense was Simon Lazenby, who was probably the least into F1 of the lot of them, just on experience and all the rest of it. And yet he was the one that seemed to be making the most sense about, well, you can't really blame Gasly for this. You had three and racing drivers. Else is pretty yeah. much saying, well, yes, you can. Much you had there. three racing drivers of relatively recent times in the car, with the exception potentially of Johnny Herbert, and all three of them were pretty much willing to throw the blame on Gasly for this one. And you have Simon Lazenby going, no, none of this adds up. And I would have, I would have liked to have seen Martin Brundle there in person talking about it, or them patching him in or something, because if you saw his tweets about it. They painted a very different picture. And I think his commentary, his presence there at the time would have been significantly different and would have been, I don't want to say a blessing, so that makes it sound like sort of quite a positive in- impact, but it would have been a hugely different insight that he would have brought to it. They just missed the point, really. Yeah. They they were completely unaware as to quite what they were discussing and mm. they missed the significant impact of this relates to from prior occurrences in the sport 
Moving on, but continuing down the theme of this poor communication, this wasn't the only issue of communication that has since marred the Japanese Grand Prix. Post-Belgium 2021, the rules around awarding points for prematurely terminated races was amended to reflect distances covered, but this only applies to terminated races where a session is abandoned. In Spa, the event last year was classified as a race that only lasted a few minutes. The outlap behind the safety car, the one race lap, a second lap that was then counted back over, and then the cars turned into the pits. Between the green lights going out and the session being ended, barely 15 minutes elapses and the session is abandoned and crucially not resumed. In this instance, the drivers hadn't completed 75% race distance, so the top 10 were awarded half points. This matched the rules that had been written at the time, but in the effort, even then the effort didn't correlate to the reward. In a bid to prevent abandoned or prematurely terminated races from dishing out big points for little distance, a new point system was put in place. However, poor communication, again, from the FIA and unclear language in the regulations, left this open to interpretation and that it applied to any race that didn't contest its full 300 kilometres or so. The ultimate meaning of the rules is that if a race is abandoned and is not resumed, then portioned points are awarded based on distance covered. If a race is resumed and reaches its terminating distance of 300 kilometres or the three-hour race window that starts when the green flag is waved, then full points are awarded, even if the distance isn't covered. See Singapore, last race. We didn't cover the complete distance because we had the race three-hour window started. We didn't actually start till an hour later, and we completed uh, about 75% of the race distance, which meant that we got full points awarded. The issue here is this opens up a weird loophole in which you get to, say, three o'clock in the afternoon and the race starts. Nothing happens for two hours and five minutes or two hours and 45 minutes you then have 15 minutes where the grid is assembled the drivers do one lap and that counts as a full race because they see the checkered flag they then get full points for that so we're still at the same problem that we saw in belgium last year because of unclear wording and unclear specifications laid out by the fia to try and solve a problem all they've done is solve half the problem and create a new one Due to the amount of safety car laps that we saw in Singapore, the race ran out of its three-hour time slot and the distance fell short of the 300 kilometers, like I said, and the full points were awarded. In Japan, the three-hour window started on time. We raced two laps, one fully, one under the safety car before it led back into the pits under the red flag. Crucially, the session was later resumed, and this meant full points could be awarded if the drivers took the checkered flag or reached the, the three-hour time window. And that's according to the bad rules. The full points were then awarded, but the fact was not communicated by stewards or race directors to the paddock or anyone else. So all assumed that partial points would be awarded according to the new FIA rules. Everyone looked at it and thought, yeah, that's perfectly fine. You obviously had teams working out going, okay, this is great. The race goes, the championship fight goes on into Austin. Even F, the F1's social media accounts were posting, Max Verstappen wins, but the title fight goes on to Austin because they assumed he was getting points correlating to 50% race distance. Timo? What amuses me in hindsight, but pissed me off megaly at the time, was the fact that when I turned on the Sky footage uh, before the race, because I was, we were already up early, you know, we're dedicated fans, this is what we do. Crofty was already harping on about all the different configurations that it would take for Max to win the championship. He's got a whole bloody wall next to him full of information and stats and numbers that he eats for breakfast because he doesn't have anything else to do in his life, apparently, apart from occasionally commentate on darts, which makes a lot of sense in hindsight. And 
throughout the race, he harps on about that. And he, then he's talking about Austin and he goes about, he goes through pretty much every possible eventuality that Doctor Strange has foreseen when he's using the Infinity Stones. And he still, when the time comes, seems to miss this one completely. And again, this guy fumbling big time and you do it, it's a little bit amusing that it comes not too long after they announced that they're getting contract extension from 2029. And he was thinking, maybe get someone new there who actually knows what the heck is going on because the only person you've got competent there is a guest commentator in Jensen Button and the presenter who is Simon Lazy, who probably watched a bit of F1 before he started at Sky, but was then probably learning on the job as he's going and is somehow now more well-versed than the actual F1 people there. And it just it seems ridiculous, again, that you've got this even being a discussion point in the first place where, okay, you can blame the FIA to an extent because, of course, we're going to. They seem to like us abusing them at this point because they're messing up so much. But... The fact that the people who were then the used and the uses of the world who lap this stuff up as well and love the attention detail, like you love that, you love the technical side of it, and you've ramp and you've got you've written an essay for Christ's sake on this, and you're really out in a podcast. That is how much you love this stuff. I'm not saying you don't love it anyway, but I don't think you're quite on that level in terms of you're writing an essay and you spend time on it. You're not quite and the pedant I am. You say that, but I do write my key takeaways. <laughs> This is true. Her okay. takeaways are chef's kiss, dissertation <laughs> length. Very true. But the point is, we do the research and we make sure and we triple check and we could triple check everything because we don't want to look like an idiot. And they're doing it on TV as the sole people of the sole rights to, to F1 in the UK. And it is what a lot of people around the world hear. You have it in Australia, New Zealand, America. America. You and Again, America being... No offence, Australia, the more important one to F1 at the moment in terms of the market that they're trying to capitalise on. And they're cocking it up big time. Just think, did, did everyone just, what the hell was going on this weekend across everything? It's just, it's just baffling and ridiculously unprofessional for what is supposed to be the pinnacle of motorsport. Well, this is the thing you raise is what the hell was going on and it's a question that my literal Very essay asks, what the hell asks, has happened <laughs> yeah my, my essay now asks that question so why did race control and the stewards not know that this was what was being broadcast this is what the teams were thinking about surely someone from the teams must have radioed up and gone just checking this is a half points race yes or we're getting x percentage of the race points available Surely someone must have messaged up. Surely someone would have seen the live feed that Sky is producing there and then and putting out that would have said 50% points awarded this race. Surely someone in the stewarding team, the, the race directing team, would have spotted that this is going on. Or were they so distanced from it or they just didn't know? I will come to you in a minute, Timo. The fact is that they didn't show us Gasly passing the crane until very late on suggests that potentially race directors have some control over what the Sky, what the local TV teams are producing. It suggests that there is this link. Obviously, don't want to put tinfoil hats on. This is just merely a suggestion based off of what we've seen over the weekend. And again, this communication breakdown suggests that something is fundamentally wrong in the way that race stewarding, race directing is all assembled because left does not know what right is doing. And unfortunately, right is putting tractors onto a live circuit with a green flag or right is assuming that you're getting half points for this race and left is awarding full points. 
and it's unclear constantly. The FIA is in a bid to improve a rule that was shown to be out of touch, and it's actually worsened the situation with its own vague wording. It wouldn't have taken much to have a banner at the top of the TV feed akin to the ones used to display news about penalties that state that unless the race is further stopped and not resumed, full points will be awarded. This would have made things clear to teams, drivers, commentators, commentators and thus also viewers and spectators at the circuit bear in mind how many thousands of people watch sky sports and watch the feed from sky you've also got ninety thousand people sat at suzuka that had no clue what was going on with regards to the end of that race i can't see the i can see the intention of their rules i can see what they were getting at when they refined these rules they were trying to avoid over rewarding races that haven't completed a significant distance retrospectively that rule makes sense retrospectively however is not good enough when we're talking about the pinnacle of motorsport the fact that it's taken so many people so long passing through fia documents old and new looking at fia press releases looking at the details about this sort of half point system where the previous release came out in 2001 over two decades old to ascertain quite how they came to their conclusion shows that more needs to be Do yeah documents that only Yuki Tsunoda or Oscar Piastri they're older than 10% of the grid we're looking at things like this to try and ascertain how the points are awarded it shows that something needs to be properly done to clarify the system and it is much like the rest of the communication from the race directors and stewards this weekend wholly unacceptable and it would be the perfect point for a Daniel Craig Jamie Bond cameo to walk into the FIA and say got the latest thing from Q Brunch it's called a radio yeah, it, a radio which we know they have because previous years they've televised that radio in use. We know that that link exists. Why is no one using it? We knew before this point that that radio was in use, but then it sort of got televised and it sort of ruined it. Should the radio still exist, we're no longer televising it. It'll have gone back to its intended purpose, which was to allow the stewards and race directors to inform teams what the hell is going on. I agree i've <laughs> i read i did read the regulation it's not it kind of does cover it but kind of doesn't like it says article 6.5 if a race is suspended and cannot be resumed points for each title will be awarded in accordance with the following criteria then they go on to you know if it's 25% it's this many points, 50% is this many points, 75 it's, you know, full. So I think, actually, the wording itself kind of makes sense in why they then awarded four points, because it does say this point system is only awarded if it cannot be resumed, and the race was resumed so you have to know that second you have to make the leap of judgment in that second half and just assume that this is what it, you have to interpret basically 50 percent of what they've said if someone yeah. gives you half a sentence you have to fill in the second half in this it's, instance i think the key wording there is three letters of cannot be resumed which is i think what a lot of us it i say us not not the general public, but I think there's I think there's two issues with the communication here, rather than the rules itself, in that the FIA had a two hour window 
where we weren't racing, where they could have been like, we're doing this because this is the rules. Um, or they could have even said it in Singapore because we were talking about point systems then because we didn't know how long the race was going to be. So they could have clarified this all up and we probably would have been like, oh, okay. And as well, because then we would have had clarity on the situation, whilst watching the race, it would have made that battle between Leclerc and Perez so dramatic and tense because we would have been like, this is the defining moment of whether Max Verstappen wins his championship or not. And I think we can't just, yes, a lot of the blame falls on the FIA, but I do also think some of the blame lies on the media because, okay, what they were saying is what they wholeheartedly believed and they weren't trying to deceive us in any way, but they are the ones that have fed us the misinformation and this is where sort of all this mess has come. So they are kind of partly to blame as well. No, I'd say that's I think the only person who can solve this, because this is going to be something where FIA don't know what they're doing. The Ferrari strategy figure out the unfigureoutable is Christopher Nolan, because he literally lives and breathes those kind of things in his films. So I think we need to hire him to come and figure this out and make an F1 film. And we won't know what's going on, but he will, and he can come and fix this for us. We'd it makes as much sense as anything else at this point. We'd have to watch his film backwards and it would all of a sudden make sense. But we'll quick before we move on, because I know it's not actually written into our list, we will touch, I want to touch on very quickly again. This is, I won't go on for the full range about this one, is the Leclerc Perez battle that came to fruition at the Casio Triangle at the final lap. And the interesting statements that were released by Mattia Bonotto saying that it's interesting how last race it took them quite a while to come to a conclusion about Sergio Perez's penalties. This week, they seem to have done it within an instance. And that is very true. And interestingly, the way the penalty was applied to Charles Leclerc, it works sort of backwards to a Formula E rule, which is the idea of if you cut a chicane, the idea is you have to imagine that chicane is completely hemmed in by a wall. You have to come to a complete stop before resuming your race is what you do in Formula E. The idea is, again, here that you can't just simply cut the chicane if you're leading to try and retain your lead. And while it's tricky to, in this instance, find that there was a lasting advantage earned by Charles Leclerc, it did look at one point as though he was getting this penalty for his over-exuberant defence of Sergio Perez, which I personally would have been what I would have awarded that penalty for, because it is a bit of a Charles Leclerc move, forcing someone to the outside of a circuit to try and defend a vital position. See Monza 2019, where he did the same thing with Hamilton coming out of Curva Grande. The fact of the matter is that that penalty did come surprisingly fast, I think, because it was quite cut and dry they were able to put it together. There wasn't a need to get Charles involved. Yes, but also the, the, the other half point to this is that Perez was absolutely miles off this point. He had dropped back to about 0.4 of a second away, coming through 130R. He was nowhere near Charles. So it wasn't really like Charles would have lost out or would have potentially been battling him through the chicane at that point. It's just simply a case of Charles' mistake drew him close but not necessarily close enough to have made the overtake. So, the, yeah, it, it's a bit of a messy one, basically. Who wants to go first? I agree with the penalty. My issue is, again, surprisingly, with the FIA in terms of, oh, so you can make quick decisions on simple matters. What's your excuse the rest of the bloody time? You useless sack of potatoes, which is, I didn't say potatoes. Um, and... You see it F1, F2, F3. 
it's throughout all of it, it's the same thing every time. And you just wonder, it's like, oh, when it's convenient and there's a championship at stake, suddenly you can be, you can make snap decisions for the right or wrong reasons. We can argue that under the code command, but you can at least make a decision. And this isn't the only clear cut incident we've had this year. It may have been a slightly dull season at times, but it's not been that dull. This is the first time that this has happened. And what Charles essentially deserved that there's also the other mistake, potentially, maybe you two know something on this that I don't, but in the rules you've got, um, there was still enough time on the clock when Max went over the start finish straight for supposedly the last time that there should have been an extra lap after that supposed final lap and a bunch of the team radio from all the drivers were asking, wait, are you sure this is over? We're not convinced this is over. And the drivers are into it and they're, they don't have an, all the information the FIA do because they're too busy driving around a car at a wet Suzuka at about 200 miles an hour. So was, it again, uh, yeah. just, again, what the hell are the FIA up to? And did they, I mean, I know the Bathurst 1000 was on, but it doesn't mean you've got to watch it during Suzuka. This is the interesting thing, was you listen back to the radios of... Lewis Hamilton as he's battling Ocon, you listen back to it of Sebastian Vettel as he's battling Alonso, and you listen back to it of Charles battling Perez. All six of those drivers in their individual battles think as they cross the line, they're now coming onto the last lap. And there is, depending on which coverage you look at, which timing screens you look at, potentially five seconds still left as Max Verstappen crosses the line for what we take to be the penultimate time, the, which suggests that potentially there should have been another lap after this. And you see Alonso and Vettel battling through turn one until his race engineer goes, that's it, that's it, you're good. I mean, we didn't see that. But we didn't see that. You, just, you, you can find it on other videos. I would suggest trawling through the internet, looking on Twitter, looking on YouTube, looking for basically everything of Sebastian Vettel and Fernando Alonso coming out of spoon curve on their final lap because it is incredible and a real show of what two world champion drivers can do if we're going to put anything positive into this podcast it is going to be those two drivers having an absolute corker of a weekend the, the silver lining is there was enjoyable stuff like this weekend we just didn't see any of it we didn't see any of it because of the spray again if you want to find out just how bad it is they did release the onboard footage of Zhou Guan Yu's fastest lap go watch it comedy because all it is is just grey it's just the onboard camera from his T-cam just battling through spray and he sets a lap that is still 15 seconds faster than GT3 cars going around there in the dry. But yeah, it's the whole weekend was a shambles. And but we can't go racing in the wet with wet tyres. No. But again, something I'm not entirely certain on. This is likely going to be something for a big argument podcast once the season's over. Um, anyway, anything to add on before we throw you the fun ball of cost caps? Uh, I don't think so. Just that, yeah, I, I agree with the Leclerc penalty. I think it was pretty clear cut. I think that's why they came to a decision so quickly. It's, I think everyone knew he had to give it back. It's that, the, yeah, the whole last lap thing I did think was weird because I was, because we essentially had 45 minutes plus a lap. So I was like, this is essentially Formula E. And we never kind of got that last lap announcement. And you say about Hamilton questioning it, Ocon questioned it as well. I've heard his like team radio where he's like, yeah, that's over, mate. And he's like, are you are you sure? Because obviously then that's... If Ocon then slowed down and Hamilton zooms off past him, he's lost like one or two points. Yeah, 
And say, if that points deficit was the difference between Alpine and McLaren come season's end, how pissed would you be? Yeah, it's just a bit of a shambles. But Can I just point out one last thing before you do go into Costco? The severity of the situation is all three of us agree multiple times. We've agreed a lot so far through the very early stages of this podcast. Like, even on things we don't tend to agree on, we've been so riled up by the actions from the FIA and Formula 1 this weekend that we've come to a point where we agree um, although when it comes to minor infringements of the cost cap we have had some very heated discussions in the group chat so Ellie May, our attorney at law our ah, attorney at law as the note says um, take it away yeah when I when I saw this note and saw my name against it I was like who who decided I was announcing about the cost caps. So, Red Bull have been found to be in breach of cost cap this year. We're not sure how much they've overspent, but it's under 5%, meaning that it's a minor breach. So it'll probably be just being some form of a fine. Aston Martin have also been found to be in minor breach, but it's with a a procedural breach. Um, They haven't gone over the cost cap at all, So it's essentially just an admin error. They've just filled out a form wrong, which actually, yeah, which also Williams did earlier this year and were fined $250,000. So it will probably, yeah. (laughs) So it will probably, Aston Martin's fine will probably be in that region. We just don't know much about Red Bull. And that's, that's just Lance Stroll's pocket money for a week. A week? That's just for him to go get a chocolate bar. I mean, with the rates of inflation, if he comes to the UK, that's probably what it's going to be soon. Oh, God, Freddo's already several thousands of pounds. Um, I just think all of this is just a, a bit of a farce. It's a bit of a response when you realise that... I've not had much of that today. No, especially when you realise that Red Bull apparently overspent by a million pounds on catering. (laughs) Yeah. So it's the Freddos. (laughs) It's Freddo Frogs. There's also a brilliant picture from of Alex Albon last year. So obviously all this relates to last year. This is when Alex Albon spent a lot of time in the Red Bull paddock where he was working as basically Yuki Tsunoda's sort of Yoda. And there's a brilliant picture of Alex Albon with his with some food from the Red Bull catering department. And what he has is one rather sad-looking sausage, two potato smiley faces and two fried eggs that look the saddest thing since Timo's bacon sandwich on Sunday morning. Unnecessary quip aside, if it was Alfred Towery and they were the ones in breach of by a million quid of supposedly for catering, I'd believe that because Yuki's in the team. I want to know what excuse Red Bull have. Unless Yuki's sneaking in and just stealing their food because he's run out of stuff Alfred Towery. <laughs> Perhaps Jerry only has the finest potatoes by face. Yeah. Free, yeah, it has to be free-ranged, locally sourced eggs that just bump up the price. Everything comes with five spices. Exactly. I just, I mean, I said this in the group chat, even before we knew what the they'd overspent on, I couldn't care less because I just think the media and certain people within F1 made such huge speculation and rumours about this and they were just stirring the pot 
and it just for me it just came to the point of I was like who cares the answer is Timo and I yeah I just, which we understand why you don't because it's yeah we can we can it's it's not the most interesting thing in the world but it's kind of I've Jesse and I is the elder statesman here it feels like we've you've again we're harking back to your your older um your aging Jesse your your rapidly moving toward middle age uh you're halfway that, there as now. he holds his alpacin hair sort of miracle liquid closer if yeah. you were an x factor would you be you're i'm in the over 25s now yeah. i will also say this Ouch. podcast should be brought to you by alpacin caffeine liquid hair energy is that how we get them to sponsor us god help us we do or anyway. they eventually stop pay us to stop saying it i like that strategy um but yeah the the reason we care is because whilst rules may have been bent or whatever before um it kind of not really the point that with all the media rightly or wrongly that it's gotten the attention for it the FIA do need to act on it now because it's got the most attention than anything else has got before regardless of if you agree with anything from previous penalties or not because of so much attention being given to it if they ignore it now and they just have some financial penalty, which really isn't going to do anything because it doesn't make any difference whatsoever, then it won't stop any other team from doing that in the future. And they'll just decide, oh, if it's 20 million to do this, then, or 5 million or whatever, if it's not on food or or anything else, if it's actually on something that matters, then what's to stop them? And that's why I think... You could take 50 points off Red Bull, for example, in the Constructors' Championship. It wouldn't make a blind bit of difference for this year. Shush. And you do you do it to show that it doesn't matter what it's for. You overspent. It's a minor breach. It's not a it's not a, oh, it's a breach, but it's not really a breach because nothing's been breached. It's still a breach. You've gone over, you've spent over. Um it's not like oh you've got a if you talk that you've spent five hundred quid in your overdraft you bag us oh we don't mind about that no we do want that money back at some point um, and it's the same thing here it doesn't matter what you spend the money on you've still overspent and you need to show that there's consequences for it and so that okay Red Bull they're in a privileged position this year that they've got a massive lead out front but if this is a different year and if the regs are going to work as they're supposed to and everything everyone closes up much more nicely you shouldn't be able to get such a an outstanding lead. And it would actually make a bit of difference. It just shows that we're not messing around. We're not just going to fine you a bit of money and everyone be on their way and forget about it because otherwise it just kind of takes the piss of it. But should the FIA take into account our views or like us being in in those sorts of circumstances? Should they should they take our views into consideration? In some things, I think they should, but in this case, just because well, it's a blatant we breach may... of the regulation, so they shouldn't need to care what we think about that. It's either it either was a breach, and it was it was either a minor breach or it wasn't. Either way, there's consequences for the actions. So yeah, it doesn't matter not... what we all think; they just need to dole out the punishment accordingly, get on with it. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a punishment. There should be a punishment if you if there is a breach, but. People have made such a big thing out of this that now people are like, I expect this to be done, blah, blah, blah. Oh, then no, they shouldn't listen to us. They've got the list of things that they want that that, that are meant to happen if you do have a minor breach. Choose the most appropriate one and just make a decision and be done with it. 
fans don't get a say on this one because they haven't not the ones that made and agreed to the rules. They're not they've got nothing to do with this one. You can be as angry as you like about it, but one as long as there's actually a decision that impacts and shows that the teams can't, or if they do break these rules or breach these rules, if we're going to be very technical, because I know you're the attorney here, then it needs to show that there's this lost my train of thought that there's going to there's consequences for the actors essentially what it is and they're not just going to you can't just buy your way out of it there's so much yeah. money in F1 these days that if you find Red Bull for 100 million for argument's sake it's not really going to make a big difference to them in the grand scheme of things they'll get that back from Red Bull from a couple of days I just think if it's where do you draw the line with a minor breach do you then count People do uh, teams putting more engines in their engine pool as a minor breach, and then what That's you get that, a penalty that goes back to, go to what we were talking the about the group chat. Though it's, it was you can make them. It's different to using them. It's loopholes. You, you, that goes back to you need to tighten up the rules so that you can't interpret them in these ways, and that's not going to necessarily piss off the teams because it can lead to some really clever in-box thinking which seems out the box but is actually well within the rules and is not a clever loophole it's not breaking anything it's not a breach and you get a brawn 2009 deal where they couldn't overspend if they wanted to and they still managed to come up with the best bloody idea that stumped the likes of Ferrari and Red Bull and McLaren who were at that point still all right um so that's 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 where I draw the line. I think it's a line that has to be drawn, but equally, it is that case of where, and then it's a case of how you enforce it and making sure it's enforced to stop people crossing that line. This is the first time they have done this. Equally, there has to we have to. I'm not going to say we have so to give, Yeah, we. Do, I'm not saying we give Red Bull some leeway on this, but we give the FIA and everyone some leeway and some time to appropriately figure out how they're going to do this. Because obviously, they might have gone into this probably went to this assuming that it was going to be a bit of a gentleman's accord and everyone was going to go, no, we're going to stick to the budget caps only for them. And then they go, okay, just to be on the safe side, we'll ratify this, we'll send the accounts around and check everyone's done this. And then all of a sudden they've gone, bagger, someone hasn't. And then they've had to go, did we think of anything to do if they don't? And then they've gone, no. So now they've realised that potentially the thing they've brought in, they might have to actually police it as well, which seems to be like an ongoing thing with the FIA in Formula 1 is bring something in, then forget you might have to police that at some point in time. But I'm aware that we've spent a lot of time already talking about news things and we still have one relatively big thing to talk about and still finance related somehow. I can relate it to the cost cap though because I would suggest that if... What if there is a financial aspect to Red Bull here and they have to pay some monies instead of the FIA just absorbing that and we never see where it goes again? Why not use it to fund W Series for the rest of this year? Because W Series has been forced to conclude early in 2022 due to financial issues, as we talked about in our W Series episode following Singapore last week or two i forget time at this point last week um very long weeks at the moment forgive me and it's after supposedly an american investor backed out that would have secured their future for uh i think at least the rest of the season and potentially 2023 w series itself hasn't completely folded as of yet but it doesn't look good um 
and they're focusing now on securing stuff for 2023. We don't know what a calendar would look like, how soon that would be, how many races that would consist of, how many teams that would be. This is also whilst racing on the same weekend as Formula One is not actually supported by Formula One in uh, put your money where your mouth is. We'll talk about we race as one and improving diversity and we want a female driver in F1, despite some of the things that Domenicali says that doesn't help himself or F1 in that particular matter. Um, and it's just all very sad and also means that for the fourth time this year out of four championships, Jamie Chadwick is crowned W Series champion off track. Similar, which again is not what we want. We've had that with F1 this weekend, F2 and F3, both due to red flags in Monza, cutting the race short and drivers having to wait around a bit and figure out if they'd actually won or not. Um, and now we've had the same W Series, who Jamie probably at home having a nice cup of tea and just sees and he's, oh, W Series champion for the third time. That's nice. I got a oh, so W Series has gone to gone to shit. That's that's not so good. And you've got to think with you've got a lot of crypto based teams who've put a lot of hard work into building these teams up and securing financing. Court Dell comes to mind. They had exclusive NFTs with the prime focus of we'll sell these, making a bit of money, fund it back into the team and W Series itself. And it's all this really niche kind of grassroots thinking in a way to fund this series and you've got F1 over here who you get charged for pre-ordering tickets for Vegas and you don't have a little bit of money to spare I don't care if it's not your legal obligation to they're on the same weekend as you they help big up your main event the least you could do is throw a few million their way to help them out for this year at the very least to showcase them in Austin and Mexico which are two massive venues, especially when you've got an American driver on the grid in W Series this year, who's now going to miss a home race as a result. You've got an American team with Caitlyn Jenner's team, and you've got some bona fide names in there as well already, like Jamie Chadwick, like Eric Pulling, Alice Powell, and Marta Garcia as, as four that come to the top of my head. It's Cavissa, someone who's challenging for the title this year. Well, was. Yeah, yeah. And instead, we're just kind of left with a very much an early Grand Tour episode of the special guest is meant to come on, James May just turning around going, oh, does that mean they're not coming on then? Except it's not funny and it's really quite depressing. It certainly isn't very funny and as much as you can sort of, you could, it's easy to make sort of the joke of Jamie Chadwick being sort of a, a winner by default and you can insert the sort of Homer Simpson meme of default, default, best two words and all the jokes off that. It is galling and disappointing to see what is a brilliant and very entertaining and very important racing series cancelled due to this lack of funds and I think on the previous time we talked about it I made my opinions clear on the fact that I don't think F1 should be funding it however this is an FIA certified series what is the FIA doing with all these fines and money it seems to keep picking up from drivers touching rear wings how much did they charge Max Verstappen last year for touching the back of Lewis Hamilton's car what did they do with that money I would love it if if they find Lewis for his most of their and Sebastian for a panting outside of his race series so like we're going to start doing this deliberately so we're going to try and find a W series with yeah, um, do with this express, express reason for it yeah because what is the FIA doing with this money and why is it not being poured into these grassroots these lower tier feeder series that they I would love if all the drivers came to Austin with new like body piercings and tattoos and all, the, all these things that just, just to annoy the FIA like oh I'm not sure if you can have that well, find me and give the money to W Series then. Nicholas Latifi rocks up with giant ear spaces and just sort of... But, uh, it, yeah, there's 
there has been a significant breakdown of communication, of structure, of hierarchy, of business, of management that has led to this. It is unfortunate because you, I, at this point in time, it's again early, like when we were discussing it the previous uh, on the previous Dolly Series episode about where this breakdown in communications come from, where this breakdown in management and structure has come from. It's too early to make a call on that, but it'll be interesting to find out where it does, why it's happened. And equally, will Jamie Chadwick get her prize money from this series? Will she be able to fund a Formula 3 seat? Will she be able to fund her Indy Lights seat? Well, there was nice. a thing Caitlyn Jenner was saying at the start of the season that I'm going to help Jamie get into F2 next year off the back of this season. The only way that's going to happen is if Caitlyn funds her through her own pocket now. I just think it's such a shame because as well it's a good series it's not it's not boring despite sort of Jamie running away with the title kind of but it also we're trying to give women more chance in motorsport and if we lose W series then we're not going we're not going to see so many women on screen and as well with it being cut short what does this mean for the drivers next year like if Jamie had carried on this whole season would F2 look to her and think thought oh you know we might we might give her a shot and now they may not think about it Mm. I just and there's the wider implications beyond the drivers as well. Obviously, you've got all the people associated with running a fairly major sporting series. You've got engineers, mechanics, the people that make up the, what is it, a seven or eight teams that make up a W Series? So, I, I put a point in there that there, is a, there was a W Series mechanic, Cleo Collins, and through her work in W Series, she's now working at Alpine because she managed to get the experience needed there to go and progress there. And you just think how many... Other missed opportunities like that are they going to be? We ignored the drivers for a minute there. As important as they are, they can't even get on track without these people. And how many of those opportunities are now just not going to happen as a result of that? Mm. And bear in mind that was- W Series is sort of its extended role is not just promoting female drivers; it's promoting female talent within motorsport. That does not strictly apply to the drivers. And like you said, we've seen that happen with mechanics getting promoted to Alpine. And you look at there. I was watching one of the. Uh, I think it must have been qualifying or a practice, late part of a practice session on Friday, and there was female mechanics in the Williams garage. And look at it and going, this is having a positive impact. We're seeing this diversity coming through. And what's going to happen now that that's stopped? Hopefully, hopefully that diversity stream that started is going to keep flowing. Hopefully, it's that seeing these people on screen doing these roles is going to keep drawing people in and they'll sort of go in through Formula 3, Formula 2, they'll go in through GT, WEC, IMSA, other spec series, that, and they'll sort of find their way in that way. There won't be the direct route that W Series offers, but it hopefully that sort of the capillary effect will still be drawing people in or drawing women into these roles. The last thing I'll say before we move on is the only female driver was Tatiana Calderon 
um, in F2 this year, and she came in through IndyCar. And you think, and that was after quite, like she'd been out of it since 2019. She went off and did several other things and then got the chance to come back in after being, after being IndyCar again this year. And you just think, as great as that was for her, that should not have been the method she needed to get back in there. And if that's how long it takes her to do it and she has to go outside of the official ladder that you've got to climb for in the first place, then what chance do the people who are at the bottom of that ladder actually have? Yeah, I was... It's Well, it's a different point now. I was just going to add on to those sort of more behind the scenes that you think people like Charlotte Sefton, who worked with McLaren, had a very stable job left last year as head of PR to come to W Series and is now potentially out of a job next year. It's like people have risked kind of their livelihoods to try and make this, what do you call it, like... System, series, ecosystem. Series. <laughs> make this this series work. And it could all just be now for... It's not going to be for nothing, but... It's, again, it's another one of these open goal opportunities that F1 has so many of at the moment, and the FIA, and they're just not taking it, and the reasoning is, meh? There, there is none. Anyway, but it's sort of a flat point to conclude nearly an hour and a half of what the hell has happened. It has been a I very busy... I am going busy... to suggest that we split this podcast into two parts. You release one part of it on Wednesday or Thursday and the second of the weekend as we have a week break. There is <laughs> we going to... <laughs> I think the way I'm going to do it is do like a double release. There's going to be part one, which is what the hell has happened. So if, you, if you've enjoyed this news section, go back and watch it again. If you're looking for part two of this, um, just check the feed. It'll be either below or above this. As part two, which is where we go into our winners and spinners, and normal services resumed. 